Hey everybody, this is Veda, aka Veda the Real MC, and you're now tuning in to the latest episode of Is Here Real One Radio as I discuss the topic of Is Christianity the White Man's Religion with Dr. Vince Bantu. Okay, we want to go into great details about this common objection that happens, particularly within the black community in America. So make sure you check out part one if you haven't already done so of this topic. And this is part two where we discuss. Is Christianity the white man's religion with Dr. Vince Bantu today on Is He a Real One Radio? Church history was because of the way in which, you know, especially in our community, a lot of the issues that people take with with the gospel really have more to do with Christianity and Christian history more than the actual gospel message of Jesus Christ. You know, and so that's why I was like, well, that was kind of why I came into it, that angle. But I want, I, I really wanted to do the history thing right and do it justice. So that's why mm-hmm. that's really my main actual hat is like is as a historian. But I really try to use it for apologetical purposes, if that makes any sense. No, no, that make that made great sense. And honestly, you know, because that's your approach, that's probably why you hit people like me and other apologists radars. You get what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Because you're well learned and you like to teach and share the information on church history, you know? Because mm-hmm. like I was telling my boy, I don't, I don't know if you ever heard of this cat named Vocab Malone, you know, he graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, like I told him, I talked to him all the time or whatever. I'm about to do um, a conference with him in Phoenix soon, you know, but I told him I was going to talk to you. He was like, oh, man, you know, tell him I want to talk to him. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so like, so like we know of you, <laughs> you know, and, and it's easy work to know of you because of, you know, your prestigiousness in church history, man. So that's dope. That's dope. Oh, but, um, yeah, man. So I'll go ahead and do the intro. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, Veda, a.k.a. Veda Real MC. And I am here with my man, Dr. Vince Buntu. You know, I already hit record in the middle of our conversation because it already sounded like he was saying some good stuff, man. So, you know, we kind of like jumped off in that foot. But that but y'all, if y'all heard that, then you already know what it is. You know, y'all, we talking to a very well studied brother you know, who has a um, who has a passion for Christ. He's on fire for Jesus and he's on fire for serving God's people. Um, you want to give yourself um, an, an introduction on yourself, Dr. Bantu? Hey, um, well, yeah, what's up? What's up, Veda? Uh, man, it's good to be here. Uh, man, just so encouraged with the work that you're doing. Um, yeah, man, like, like you said, my name is Vince Bantu and I'm here uh, in my native St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and um, yeah, man, I, I uh, teach um, and in kind of various institutions, uh, you know, I teach at Eden Theological Seminary, Western Theological Seminary, uh, the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Uh, also, I work with a, an organization that I uh, helped to found. It's called the Meacham Memhara Hymeno or the Meacham Theological Institute. And that's a seminary program aimed at equipping, uh, especially uh, African-American and uh, other, you know, leaders in the urban context with, with accessible and affordable theological education. So wow. uh, you can hit that up up at uh m-e-a-c-h-u-m and uh and yeah man I, I write i'm working on a book project with university press and uh working on another one uh really trying uh engaging african-american theology but kind of my main area of interest is really on uh church history especially in africa uh the middle east and asia as well really i'm kind of interested in non-western church history but mm. but particular kind of emphasis on the growth of Christianity in in the African continent, especially in the early, uh, early centuries. And you say you have a book that's on this topic that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, hopefully, I've uh, been, been working on it a few years, and it's in the copy editing phase now with oh, InterVarsity wow. Press. It's in this series they're doing called Missiological Engagements. 
And, uh, and yeah, man, it's basically going to be like kind of an introduction. Well, really, it's going to be kind of like a double-sided thing, which I peeped that, you know, we were going to get into a little bit now. But um, it's really kind of engaging this whole question about is Christianity a white man's religion? And yeah. uh, really trying to really engage that that common assumption. And right. the first part is really like kind of looking at how that came to be historically. But then the other part of it, which is really the core of it, is looking at, Kind of okay, but this is the other side of the story that's often been neglected that really kind of tears that apart. Yeah, and 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 it's it's funny, man, because like I actually don't want to li- like I have no idea how you know I'm gonna title this video when I upload it because of course part of it, like you said, I do want to talk about the topic is Christianity the white man's religion, and in fact, me interviewing you is kind of like part two to um to a presentation that I've already done on this show where you know where I demonstrate that even if you want to argue that Christianity isn't real, which of course, you know, um, I'm thoroughly convinced that it is, but no, but even if you just want to be a person of facts, there's no way you're going to say that Christianity is the white man's religion. It's just historically speaking, that's just uh, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. That's just the fact of the matter, you know, but also knowing you, like you just said, you know, I don't want to just limit you to that. You know, I do want to talk about some some important stuff in early church history. So I'm kind of just want to see, you know, um, how the conversation goes, man. You know, so, so so the first thing I kind of want to touch on from from your perspective, if you can just tell us, like, how did the perception of westernized Christianity, like, where did that even come from? And how accurate is it? Like, like where, where did that even come from? Because, you know, like you just heard me say. Mm-hmm. Even if you're going to argue, hey, Christianity isn't true or whatever, mm-hmm. even then, if you're an atheist who is well-learned, you're not mm-hmm. going to say Christianity is the white man's religion if you know the mm-hmm. history, if you just know the history of the practice of it before we even get to how true it is. So mm-hmm. it, a lot of that comes from the perception of westernized Christianity. So how did, the, mm-hmm. how did that perception, like where did that even come from and how accurate is it? Yeah, man, that's a great question. And like, it really, uh, it ties in, um, you know, to kind of know like what we were talking about, because that's really where I start things out in this book is trying to really get at from a historical pers- like perspective, where did that kind of um, identity politic or, you know, that's kind of like the phrase that a lot of the social scientists like to use, like basically kind of how behaviors or thought or thought patterns or popular movements get attached to particular ethnic or social or uh, any, you know, even political kind of groups. And like, how did that, you know, how did that come about? Because, I mean, I think most of us, especially in the black community, but really around the world are, have been exposed to that idea that Christianity is, and, and, you know, the moniker will change. Like if you're, you know, it might be, oh, it's a Western religion or Christianity is a Western religion. Christianity is an American religion or Christianity is a white man's religion. I mean, but they all kind of overlap and they all kind of intertwine with each other. And they basically have to do with like a, a a political, ethnic, racial, and geographical reality Mm. that again uh, is problematic because we know as believers that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people tribes and tongues that yeah. that is not beholden to one particular culture and we see that in scripture like you said i mean um you know it, it's crazy to think about the fact that people even associate christianity as being the product so to speak of any one particular culture because right. the new testament itself 
takes great pains to communicate the reality Come that on. it does not belong to anybody. Come I mean, on. if there's going to ever on. be a people group that Christianity, quote unquote, belongs to, it would have been the Jews, right? right. Because Jesus was Jewish. All the early Christians were Jewish. Apostles were Jewish. All the early believers in Jew. All the whole Bible is written by Jewish people, except you know maybe Luke, and even that's you know questionable whether he was Jewish or not. So like, if if it was ever going to be belong to one group, it would have been the Jews. And yet, right. the Bible itself, the New Testament itself, go over and over again says, "Hey Jews, this does not just belong to you. This is not just for you. You've actually been brought. Those of you that were brought far uh, were brought near, and you've been made as one body, one holy temple." I mean, they just hammered this issue over and over throughout every. Pauline epistle throughout the general epistles through the book of Acts. I mean, and it's not even a New Testament agenda. The Old Testament was already clear about the fact that God was going to create a chosen nation out of Abraham to bless all nations. And right. I mean, so, so the global scope of God's salvific economy was already clear in the Old and New Testament. So it makes no sense uh, to add on to that, even to go out of scripture in the early church in the first few centuries. The gospel, again, you want to talk about just history, extra biblical sources. The, again, Christianity was going in every direction. It was all over the world. It was going in, in every corner of the known world at that time. It was not associated with any particular people group in its earliest years. And so, you know, just to get back to that question, it made me really wonder, like, how did that come about? Because we know that that's the reality. And again, it's not just the reality for black people, but it's the reality across the world. You know, when I, when I teach classes on missions, I tell them that um, this, you know, this this is something that uh, my, my friend and mentor, Dr. Soon Chan Ra, in his book, uh, The Next Evangelicalism, he calls it the white Western captivity of the church. The hmm. idea that Christianity is being held captive. And we're seeing this now in some ways very vividly in our in our current in America 2019 that Christianity is in many ways being held captive by white Western American cultural values. That is it really the gospel? Is it really the message of scripture that is the leading force in a lot of churches? Or is it actually cultural and social kind of values? And that, and, and, and the way in which, again, you see a, um, you see a white depiction of Jesus and nobody questions it. Nobody thinks it's weird. <laughs> but if you saw a black or an Asian depiction of Jesus, people would stop for a second and be like, Oh, that's weird. And yeah. that, that is what Dr. Ra talks about when he says cultural captivity. The fact that no one thinks it's weird to see a white Jesus, but we think it is weird to see a black or an Asian Jesus, that is exactly what cultural captivity is, is the fact that Western white identity and Christianity have been so linked together that 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 it's that that they be they become seen as inseparable. And and I I'll say in a lot of missions classes that this is, I would argue, the biggest challenge uh in, in, in that the church faces like in the world today this is the biggest barrier to the gospel this is the biggest reason why people don't if, if people are passionate about evangelism apologetics this and that then we if the gospel the kingdom of god we need to be taking this issue very seriously because this is the biggest reason why i mean if you think about it most people in the world are people of color the most people in the world are my are you know quote-unquote minorities um and yet uh, if you look at those parts of the world in Africa and Asia and, you know, Native Americans and, you know, Latin America, like if you look at people around the world who are not Christians, who are not believers, like probably 99 percent of the time, one of the biggest, if not the biggest reason why they would not consider Christianity or why they would not want to be a Christian is, again, over an identity issue. It's that yeah. Christianity in their mind is a Western white religion. Therefore, it is antithetical to my identity. If you're in the Middle right. East, you're in 
India, if you're in China, if you're in Japan, if you are with Native Americans, Black folks, African folks, again, I'm talking about non-Christians. If you're dealing with non-Christians in this majority world, people are going to say, well, that's a white man's religion or that's a Western religion. That's an American. That's not my religion. But it usually doesn't have to do with the actual claims of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to do with the gospel. It doesn't have to do with, I'm a, you know, I mean, again, the problem is that most, and I mean, I know you know this better than I do. Most apologetics is framed by the Western white middle-class American culture and identity. So in that cultural context, most of the time, a non-believer, their main issue is a philosophical one, or it is a theological one. Like, oh, I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in the divine. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. That's usually what it is in a West, in Europe or in, uh, in the U.S. or North America. But again, in the majority world, most people believe in God. Most people believe in the divine. Most people believe in miracles. They And they don't necessarily even have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with Christianity because it's perceived as this white man's religion. So this is a, this is a major major, major issue. And, and, and I'm sorry, I'm getting, taking a long time to get to the question, but to get to, <laughs> you know, what, it, that, it just kind of, I mean, this is what, this question really is what pushed me into academics uh, in, in as a whole, really, was to really explore this thing. And, and again, you know, I would just kind of summarize it to say, uh, and, and I do this in the book, but I mean, I would just summarize it to say that really um, the major shift and a lot of people in our community that, that are dealing with and, and kind of developing different uh, movements and religious movements or, or cults, as we sometimes call them or whatever, uh, a lot of them have in common. They all like to focus on Constantine, right? That's a big issue. You know, em- the Emperor Constantine and the fourth century, that is a big thing that comes up. And I would say that that's not without uh, good reason, because the fourth century represents a massive shift in Christian history that, you know, in, you know, I mean, I mean, we got to imagine like, at the turn of the fourth century, especially in the Roman Empire, Christians were like the most persecuted religion in the Roman Empire. I mean, even other religions that were not part of traditional Roman religion had more tolerance than Christians did. And so Christians were severely persecuted. And, you know, right, actually, right before Emperor Constantine, Emperor Diocletian was the worst uh, emperor who really did the worst amount of persecution to Christians all throughout the Roman Empire. And then right after him, the situation flips, and now uh, Christians go from being persecuted to now being the dominant. They're they're in the majority now. They're. they're I, 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 I want to get you. Hold on, I, I want to pause right quick because I want to actually add some structure to that point that you're to, mm-hmm. to that point that you're making. So before I actually dive into that, I actually want to respond mm-hmm. to something that you said a couple minutes ago. You know, um, ab- about how you know uh, people of other backgrounds, you know, particularly in the study of apologetics, they can focus on other things that that try to dispute the Christian faith. Like, do we believe in God? Do we believe in miracles? You know, and what's, what's funny is see like in academia, I mean, I'm still studying. I study every day, but I've been blessed to learn directly from some of the top Christian scholars in the world, particularly in the field of apologetics. And most of those guys like aren't black, you know, in fact, when I, when I go to places that I'm very blessed to be accepted in, you know, I stand out, like I stand out because not only am I black, I'm a young black dude. And, you know, you don't like it's obviously like like before I got saved, like I'm like the I'm 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 the stereotype. You know what I mean? Like, OK, dude, gangbanger, dude, is I do my rob me. Like, yeah, I might have robbed you back in the day. You get what I'm saying? Like, um, but my point in saying that is being in those circles, you know, like when I post videos like this, you know, it's not just like I don't consider myself an urban apologist, although I'm that naturally, you know, mm-hmm. I consider myself a Christian apologist. So it's not mm-hmm. 
So like my reach isn't necessarily just towards the black community. And the reason I'm pointing that out is when I did my post on is Christianity the white man's religion? And I was even in Dallas, Texas last year and I did a presentation on that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people um, of Caucasian descent who came to me and they said, wow, man, I had no idea that was even a thing. Like I had no mm-hmm. idea that was even an issue that you would have mm-hmm. to address, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, and, and that I've been told that seven times. Mm-hmm. I've been told that like seven times and, and mm-hmm. I can't help but count because it's people who know me who might mm-hmm. be like, yo, Beta, that was a really great presentation, but I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, um, and, and, and when it comes to, you know, you mentioned Constantine, you know, so so I, I, I want to I want to ask you, like, like what exactly was the Council of Nicaea and did Constantine have something to do with that? And some of these questions I already know the answer to or kind of know your response, but I kind of want to form it in a way for people who are first time listeners. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to just like have a conversation that's like up here with like with. Um, mm-hmm. you know, with like the history mm-hmm. stuff that we're covering. So mm-hmm. what exactly was the Council of Nicaea and mm-hmm. was Constantine a part of that? And who is, who is he? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that really um, with respect to this question about, again, how did Christianity become seen as a white man's religion? I mean, again, I mean, I think we have to be honest about the fact that number one, no, Christianity is not a white man's religion. And it's not, a, it's not a any one man or woman's religion, but it's for all people. But at the same time, we have to tell the truth about the fact that that is how it's seen. And that is the perception of many people. And so I think that with respect to, okay, how did it get seen that way? How, how is it still seen that way? Then I think that um, the Council of Nicaea is really one kind of component to a larger a larger paradigm that happens in the early fourth century that again has to do with Constantine and his reforms and not only Constantine but specifically the way that Christians in the Roman Empire constructed him because a lot of the ideas we have about Constantine come from Christians writing about him and putting words in his mouth and not necessarily from the man himself and so it's really a lot about how Christian not not I don't even like to think of it just as the just as the Council of Nicaea or even just Constantine but it was about the Romanization of Christianity that in the same way that Christianity, as uh, to use Dr. Ra's wording, Christian, if Christianity is being held captive, it, if it is seen as inseparably linked from, from whiteness and from European and Western uh, identity, that, that goes to the foundation of white Western identity, which is the Roman Empire. I mean, the idea of Europe built itself upon the fallen Roman Empire. And, and which later would go out and conquer the rest of the world and, the, and create this idea of the West, this unified coalition of various European nations that all were modeling themselves and have a historical link to the Roman Empire. And I mean, even to, even to this day, we still build Supreme Courthouses and uh, all this kind of buildings. I, we model it after Greek and Roman architecture. I mean, all the Western world in many ways harkens back to the Greco-Roman world. And that was the really the, the point. And the Council of Nicaea was one of the really good ways that you saw that. But basically what happened was that in the fourth century, uh, starting with the conversion of Constantine, that Constantine allegedly converted to Christianity. And then he, uh, you know, and, 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 and it talks his biography, which was written by a Christian bishop in Rome, uh, which by this Christian bishop named Eusebius was greatly celebrating Constantine, says that he saw the sign of the cross in the sun and was told by God, according to Eusebius, to go out and conquer in the name 
of the cross. And so this is really the beginning of when you have Christianity being appropriated in the use or in the deployment of a particular nation state or empire saying that, well, God is on our side and he's given us the ability and the call actually to go out and spread this thing. And so, you know, Constantine uh, began to close down a lot of the pagan temples and, you know, uh, it's reported that he destroyed them and he's, started helping to build churches. And this is when you start to finally have um, some of the earliest extant still today, like church buildings and basilicas, and even the name basilica, again, or cathedral, all these kind of words that come from Greek and Roman culture and architecture is, is when Christianity really started to take on the look and the feel of Rome. Again, just before, it's not a white man's religion. It's not a Roman religion. It makes no sense for people to argue that, oh, uh, Christianity was an invention of Constantine to use as a mechanism of domination. Yes. Constantine did use Christianity as a mechanism of domination. And he, he told himself that God was on his side. But again, the person right before him, Diocletian, and many other emperors before them were killing Christians. And many of these Christians who they were killing were Africans, were from North Africa, and were from the Middle East. So for people to say it's a white man's religion, it doesn't make any sense because, again, just a few years before that, it was not cool to be a Christian at all. But people were still dying for the faith. And we have writings from them from the first, second, and third century, long before the time of Constantine. Uh, I, got, I got a question. I got a question. I, I got a question. So... So, wow, man, you said you said a lot. I'm trying to pick which one to, <laughs> you know, <that. laughs> I to pick which one to actually um dive in a little bit. So I want to ask you, um, not necessarily to quote a source or, or or anything, but when you say that before um Constantine, you know, um got the influence that he had, the people who had the power and influence before that were actually persecuting and still killing mm-hmm. Christians, and many of them were Africans, you mm-hmm. know, where do we see that in, in history? Like, how do we, mm-hmm. like, like, like how, how do we know that? I mean, we know that because, uh, the, I mean, the, one, the, the wonderful thing, especially when I look at early African church history, is that not only was Christianity present in Africa in the first second and third centuries and going forward, but it was actually the dominant religion at a very early stage. And we see that from textual evidence. Again, I mean, when you look at the vast majority of Coptic literature, if you want, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of people in our community are saying we want to go back to Egyptian religion. We want to be hoteps and be down with Egyptian religion. Well, actually Egyptians themselves became Christians at a very early stage. The earliest fragment of the Bible that we have in possession came from Egypt. And that's from like the second century. P52. You're talking about P52. That's a fragment that's right, of, yeah. of, of, of John's Gospel that's dated around that's right. 125, 130 AD. Yep. That's right. And then, you know, you got early uh, apologists like Tertullian and uh, and then martyrs like Perpetual Felicity and Cyprian. Mm-hmm. And then you got Lucy, Lucy, Lucy you got, Yep. You got all of these writers that were writing at a time, no, uh, regardless of their religious background, any historian that looks at these people do not dispute the fact that these were Christians who lived and wrote their theological literature in the second and third centuries, again, way before Constantine. And so again, I mean, the, the, you know, it, it's, it's, and, and then you got archaeological evidence. You got churches, and you have uh, uh, you know re- Christian relics and crosses and liturgical 
you know, all kind of material ev material evidence that, again, starting in the second century, going up until well after the time of Constantine, you have evidence of Christian churches all over North Africa. And that's just Africa, but I mean all over the world. And so, again, this uh, archaeological and literary evidence all point to the fact that Christianity was not only present, but it was actually the dominant religion in all of these places. Hey, so, so, so you said something about, you know, uh, Constantine, like, closing down, you know, like, pagan temples and stuff like that. I think that that part of history is where we get the rumor of, you know, well, Constantine, you know, he had control and he was killing people to you know, make them become Christians. Can, can you respond that objection at all? I mean, again, there, there's um, there certainly seems to be evidence of that, because even Eusebius himself, who is Constantine's kind of champion, his kind of, you know, biographer who wrote the life of Constantine, does talk about you know, the ways in which Constantine began to persecute pagans, Roman pagans. And, mm. and we have, and, and we can't shy away from that as Christians, that that did, that did happen, that once Christian became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, it seemed like they was kind of like, we're going to get some get back. And <laughs> was, you know, probably the best example of that was the most famous example. There was a movie about it actually called Agora uh, was the Roman, was the uh, kind of Greco Hellenistic uh, philosopher named Hypatia who lived in Alexandria, who was murdered by Christians. And so uh, under the order of the Bishop. And so there, there was definitely violence perpetrated by Christians. And, and uh, this is, I think this is unfortunately the, the natural effect that happens when Christianity becomes militarized and nationalized. And then we've seen this all across uh, Western history, but again, that was not, so, I mean, yes, for sure. But I mean, the other thing about it though, is that we have to acknowledge that that happened, but it's also very unclear as to the nature of Constantine's Christianity, because he, it seems that he was baptized by an Arian bishop. And and so and then and also even after his alleged conversion, you still find pagan insignia on a lot of his imperial coinage. So it's very questionable as to whether or not how how much was Constantine actually himself a committed Christian versus how much did Eusebius really just want him to be and kind of put him up in that light. Can you tell us can you tell us for, for those who may not know who may be listening um, what the significance is of Constantine possibly being baptized by an Arian bishop? Can you tell us why that's important for those who may not know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Real talk. Yeah, I'm, I'm over here. The church history stuff. Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's um, yeah. Yeah. So Arius was a uh, was a Libyan bishop who argued that Jesus was subordinate to God, the father. That he was a created being. And that was going back to the other question. Actually, we didn't get to that uh, about Council of Nicaea. That was the predominant theological issue on the table in the early fourth century. Basically, it was a question of is Jesus. Is he God or is he kind of like God? Is he a lesser God? That was the main question. And Arius had a famous quote that said uh, there was once when the son was not. There was a time when the son did not exist. And then God, the father, created him and brought him into existence. And so he was teaching this. And Alexander, who was the bishop of, or the, the patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt, the church of Egypt was arguing. So this was a this was an African debate. This was a North African Libyan arguing against the Egyptian bishop. And all, it was an internal African debate. There was Africans on both sides of this. But actually, the majority of folks would uh, would have argued that Jesus was uh, was he was homoousios he was of the same substance that was the Greek word that uh, was being used you know that at the Council of Nicaea so the Council of Nicaea was is considered the first ecumenical council now again you know I find it deeply problematic to call that the first ecumenical council because, again, the the church was not only in the western in the Western world; it was not only in the Roman Empire. And so, 
when we only tell, this is why I have an issue with so many church history textbooks, because many of them suffer the same white normativity problem where they tell history only from the perspective of kind of the Western viewpoint. And so there were, there was, a, I mean, the church was growing in the Persian empire at a rapid pace. And actually the funny thing is that when Christianity was being persecuted in the Roman empire in the 200s, Christianity was actually much more peaceful in the Persian Empire. So the very part of the world that we call now Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan was actually a much better place to be a Christian 1800 years ago than it was to be in what we now call Italy or Greece, which I just find ironic. But um, but again, that, that church over there, they were outside of the Roman Empire and, and they had their own ecumenical councils that was very independent than what was going on in the Church of Rome. And, yeah. and again, Constantine did have a very heavy role in Nicaea, in the Council of Nicaea. Eusebius talks about him kind of presiding over it in the style of a bishop but it wasn't like he was the one making the decisions and yeah. and again it, it's 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 very so Constantine was very much involved in it and he lent a lot of imperial support to the church and of course he was siding with the view that was saying no Jesus is God he is not uh, a created being he is homo usios he is the same essence homo usios he is the same substance as God the Father. But he did not invent that idea. He was not a theologian. And so people like Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius and a lot of these uh, Nicene church fathers, they were the ones that were making that theological argument. The other thing about that is that, again, like I said, it seems like Constantine may have even towards the end of his life been dabbling in Arian theology. And also Constantine exiled Athanasius, who Athanasius <laughs> was one of the chief defenders of Nicene Trinitarian theology. That, that Jesus is the same essence as God. And later on, Athanasius gets sent into exile like three times. And one yeah. of, and that was by Constantine, the same person. So how you how did people gonna say that Constantine invented this doctrine of Jesus being God and then he kicks out Athanasius for arguing that Jesus is God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, and we don't even know that he <laughs> you know that you know that he that he even believed it. And and mm -hmm. and in summary, y'all, you know, for those that are listening, you know, the reason so we we heard you know, we, we heard, you know, at the end of Dr. Bantu's soliloquy, you know, about, you know, about some of the things that Constantine did about people who are arguing that Jesus is God. But that's also why it's important because um, it, it's further evidence about him being about him being baptized by an Arian bishop, because an Arian bishop is a person who is uh, of, of high stature of Arian beliefs, which is that Jesus is a lesser God or not God at all. And that was actually the purpose of the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is not a group of people who got together one day and it was like, hey, y'all, so let's invent Christianity or mm -hmm. let's um, create this doctrine that Jesus is God or let's um, decide what books are going to be in the Bible and what books are going to be removed. That was not the council of, that's not what the council of Nicaea was. What the council of Nicaea was, was, uh, was two sides uh, debating uh, about, about what the accurate interpretation of scripture actually is as it pertains to Jesus's deity because Arian was getting really popular in his teaching that Jesus is not God. That makes sense. Y'all y'all can't talk back, but hopefully, hopefully it does. <laughs> hopefully that does. Um, can, so as, a, Oh, and also I want to point out if you guys um, heard when Dr. Bantu was saying that in the council of Nicaea, not only, not only is it misrepresented what the Council of Nicaea actually is, 
but it was actually Africans on that council on both sides, whether you're arguing um, that Jesus is God or that Jesus isn't. It was people of African descent or associated with Africa who were participating in that. So again, if you're going to argue um, Christianity, either way, it's true. It's not true. I believe this. I believe that. Again, it is it it is and it is a very unlearned thing to say to say that it's the white man's religion. It's it's just it's just it's just false. You know, mm-hmm. Did I say anything mm-hmm. wrong, Dr. Bantu? That's right. All right. Yeah, you're right. Hey, I got a question. Um, so can you? All right. So I kind of just gave the rundown about the Council of Nicaea. Are you familiar with the Council of Laodicea? And what exactly is that? Because I don't hear people talk about that a whole lot, but I think that's pretty important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not as familiar with that one. Um, but what, okay. what, were you, what kind of what, what were you thinking about with that? Oh well, because people often people often talk about that the people often will say that the Council of Nicaea is where we actually got the books from the Bible and things like that. But my understanding is that actually uh, that actually was a point of debate in the Council of Laodicea, you know, which happened before the Council of Nicaea. So I was just trying to point that out. I was just trying to point that out. Um, but as it, I've heard you say some things about. Um, um, I don't want to. I don't want to mispronounce the name. Um, Teridates the third, mm-hmm. you know, um, who, who was an emperor before Constantine. Can you tell mm-hmm. us? Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that? Some things that you may know. Yeah. So Teridates, he was the king of Armenia, actually, and uh, that's that's an interesting thing too, especially when we talk about uh, again, like you know, like you were pointing out earlier, these these ideas that that the Council of Nicaea and uh, you know, like Constantine and the Roman Empire invented these Christian doctrines, you know, which I mean, as you pointed out, these doctrines about Jesus's divinity and his being eternally, uh, you know, uh, generate and kind of you know always existing and for, you know and like being equal to God was was pointed out by Tertullian and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyons and you know Ignatius of Antioch, like so many Christian theologians had already made that clear from a very early stage in the one and two and three hundred, you know, one and two hundreds way before uh, the time of Constantine. But also when we look at how, you know, again, Christianity, you know, as again, going back to that, that, that uh, original question about, you know, is Christianity, um, you know, white man's religion or how did that idea come about that, you know, that it makes a lot of sense that that would be when Christianity became seen as the Roman religion, the religion of Rome, then by people outside of that part of the world, they were, they were looking at that as, oh, okay, Christianity is the Roman religion now. And so that means that if you're a Christian, you must be down with Rome, and therefore Christianity is not really, you know, it doesn't really work outside of that. And so, but the, the ironic thing is that even though Constantine and being the emperor of Rome and Roman Empire being kind of one of the two, you know, Persia being the other one, being the two main empires at that time, there was a lot more notoriety to that. And that's why that perception gained so much traction. But the ironic thing is that Constantine was not the first Christian king and the Roman Empire was not the first empire to embrace Christianity, but it was actually the empire of Armenia. And so Armenia was in the same place it is right now in the Caucasus Mountains and uh, over in kind of like in the Middle East where the Middle East and, and, Asia and Europe come together. And, uh, and Armenia was actually the first Christian kingdom, which about 10 years before Constantine became a Christian, Tiridates, who was the king of Armenia, accepted Christianity. There was, a, there was an Armenian Christian named Gregory 
the illuminator who came to preach the gospel. He was an indigenous leader and missionary, and he's still today seen as by the Armenian country, the, this nation of Armenia, which is still around today, and by the Armenian people is seen as the apostle of Armenia. And wow. in many ways is seen as kind of the father of Armenian Christianity. And wow. he preached the gospel to King Tiridates. He was in prison and persecuted for the gospel. And uh, at that time, Armenia had lots of different pagan religions and they, they were right. They, they, it was an independent kingdom, but they were kind of being conquered or there was a lot of colonial influences, both from the Roman empire to the West and the Persian empire to the east and so uh and so there, there was a lot of you know kind of a mix of greco-roman paganism also zoroastrianism which was you know kind of the main religion in persia and so gregory the illuminator preached the gospel and he was in prison for years and, and uh and then god punished the king tiridates and with madness because of for persecuting uh this this man of god and so he was healed uh, upon finally confessing faith in Jesus Christ. He was healed and he became a Christian and embraced Christianity. He released Gregory from the, the prison that he was in, which is now a monastery that you can visit to this yeah. day They're in a major kind of holy site for many Armenian people, and especially Christians, um, which I think that's an interesting point too, right there. The fact that in Armenia, which is a Middle Eastern country, um, Christianity is overwhelmingly the dominant religion that I mean, wow. is like 99.9% uh, Christian and most of them are Christians of the Armenian church. So that, that just goes to speak to how perception can so much uh, oftentimes re result in reality that people, again, people don't want to come to the faith because they see it as a white man's religion, but to an Armenian person saying Christianity is a white Western religion would be ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would sound like ridiculousness to them because like we've been Christian nation since the early 300s before Constantine, before the Council of Nicaea, before it, you know, before a lot of this stuff, we were already a Christian people. Yeah. And, and actually Armenian is actually one of the, um, one of the languages where we have um, some of the more popular uh, manuscripts and fragments of the actual text, not just Armenia, which is a Middle Eastern, um, <clears throat> which is a Middle Eastern place, but even in Africa, you know, in, Ethi in Ethiopian, the earliest manuscript or fragment that we have of scripture in the Ethiopian language is dated around AD 600 or something like that, you know, and that's the one that we have today in 2019, you know, so of course we can trust that scripture was, um, was written in African languages before that, because history tells us that, you know, even with people like King Axel mm -hmm. making that, like King Axel making Christianity, the, uh, you know, the nation's um, official religion, you know, mm -hmm. but we even have, like, we have evidence as far as scripture, because if Christianity wasn't being practiced in any form of Africa, we wouldn't have uh, scripture in African languages like Ethiopian, Coptic, mm -hmm. Alexandrian, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've heard you say something, uh, um, about Shenouda, you know, who actually wrote mm. in, in Coptic about Christianity. And I think that's um, really mm. um, helpful stuff as far as history is concerned. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about Shenouda who wrote, who wrote in Coptic about Christianity? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's a great, you know, kind of segue into the other side of the question, because again, you know, we, you know, we talk a little bit about, okay, uh, Christianity didn't start with Constantine or the Council of Nicaea or, you know, any of the, when, when Christian, when Christianity became the dominant religion in Rome and the Roman Empire, that wasn't the beginning of it, but that was just the popularization and it was the Romanization of Christianity. So that's, right. that's, you know, to be clear to a lot of our people that are misinformed, as you said, 
the fourth century in the Council of Nicaea and Constantine does not represent the beginning of Christianity. It represents the Romanization of Christianity, which became the whiteization of Christianity and the westernization of Christianity. But hey, like you said, it's not the beginning. Hey, I know you're going to answer my question, but I want to pause you real quick just to try to put that in, in, in layman's terms for those who are listening. Now, mm -hmm. it would be foolish of us to say that the Golden State Warriors of the last three to four years invented the three-pointer or that they invented, you know, mm -hmm. fast-paced basketball where you shoot a lot of threes. We know the Phoenix Suns, they didn't win a championship, but with Steve Nash, Sean Marion and all them, that's what mm -hmm. they did with Mike D'Antoni, you know. Mm -hmm. Or if you just want to talk about individual basketball players, you're not going to say Steph Curry invented the three-pointer now granted it's true they might have made it really popular you know when the phoenix suns was doing it they didn't win the championship so therefore it wasn't 16 other nba teams who tried to emulate it that's the case right now with the warriors and that's the case right now in the state of the nba where everybody just want to throw up a whole bunch of shots and if you go to a random junior high school game or high school game you see people doing that too they used to be trying to cross over like iverson or kobe or stick their tongue out like jordan now they're doing a three-pointer but that does not mean that the golden state warriors or steph curry invented the three-pointer just because they may have made it very popular in this date and time. Is that a fair analogy, mm -hmm. Dr. Bantu? Well, I mean, I wouldn't know because I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of a weird, like, uh, oh, you don't watch dude, basketball at all? Sports, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm taking your word for it. It sounds cool. It sounds it sound like it makes a lot of sense to me. And you know the analogy I would even give to it, too, that would even add the layer of the way that I, I use that word appropriated because, again, Christianity was very much appropriated and co-opted by the mm. Roman Empire to, to the point to where and Peter Brown makes his argument in his book, The Rise of Western Christendom, that – in the fourth century, Christianity started to take on a decidedly Roman flavor, and 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 it started to look a lot more Roman in many ways than it did, you know, as as just purely Christian. And so, another analogy for that would be the fact that black people in this country invented rock and roll. But if we looked up the great rock and roll greats, or if you were wow. in the fifties or sixties, thinking like, oh, I see Elvis and I see all of these white rock and roll players, I'm thinking, oh, they must have invented it. It must be a rock and roll must be a white musical genre because wow. all these are all people wow. but they had That's money they had record producers they had abilities to literally steal music from the black people who invented it so this wow. is actually a black art form that was co-opted by yeah. white people and then now to the point that it became associated with them even though they did not even start it and that's actually literally what happened and that's that was, i think that's another yeah. analogy that how, how it would compare what happened with the relationship between Constantine, the Roman Empire, and Christianity in the fourth century. They saw this religion that they were persecuting for 300 years, and <laughs> all of a sudden, when it seemed like a good idea, they said, you know what, let's actually take this thing over, and you know, let's just kind of dominate it. And, mm -hmm. and, and you know, to your other point, too, um, about Shenouda, um, Christian, again, Christians were in other parts of the world. They were in Africa. They were in, you know, they was in Egypt, Nubia, Ethiopia, the Arabian Peninsula, Qatar, and Persia and India at a very early stage, in this early stage. And the funny thing is that even after Christians in Rome took over and started to frame, you know, that was the other problem or with Nicaea was the fact that even though they were arguing for Orthodox theology, they did it in very platonic Romanized ways. And we still have that problem today that if Christianity or Christian theology doesn't look like the way it's framed in the Western white world, we see it as not Orthodox. And so yeah. that's the very, that's the very problem. But but when you point out Shenouda, that represents the 
beautiful and rich and long tradition of Christianity in Asian and African languages and doing things in totally different cultures. Shenouda is one of the best examples, because, especially for African church history, because when you, when you look at Christian theology that is done in African languages, not in Greek or Latin, like a lot of the, like a lot of the, the theologians did that were living along the Mediterranean coast in Alexandria and Carthage, uh, writing in Latin and Greek. But a lot of the, a lot of the theologians that wrote in the African languages, Shenouda is one of the earliest and most important. He is still to this day the greatest writer in the history of the Coptic language. He wrote tons of sermons and treatises and 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 so many different writings in the Coptic language. He was the he was a holistic brother. We were talking earlier about the mix between academics and the, theological studies and ministry. This brother uh, he he invented the side hustle and the, and the, he invented the bivocational lifestyle because this man was a a leader of a monastic community called the White Monastery Federation, and, and it was in Upper Egypt or Southern Egypt out in the desert, and he was leading African monks into a life of following Jesus, and he wrote sermons and, and, and educated them in the scriptures. He argued strongly against the, the ISIS and the Horus cult, which, I mean, again, for people to say, oh, it's a copy, no. Uh, even in his day, there were people still praying to ISIS and Horus, and he was arguing against them, saying, Jesus is Lord, and he represented um, really the the contextualization or the the movement of Christianity really taking on the language of the native Egyptians. That from after him came many many Coptic writers, but he was really the first big one. He was he was living in the late 300s, early 400s, and he was he represented uh, both a the way that Christians were deeply committed to orthodoxy and to the authority of scriptures and rejected pagan religion, rejected their own, uh, you know, he was an Egyptian and he led many other Egyptians and, and many Christian Egyptians by his time had walked away from paganism. But he also uh, was someone who wrote in a, in the Coptic tradition, which right after his time had become isolated and ostracized even from the dominant Roman empire in the, in the council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, the Coptic church was exiled from the dominant church in Rome because they didn't have the same Christology that, that, uh, you know, and they were all Christians. They, everybody, they all believed that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But the Coptic Church, still to this day, just has a very unique way of articulating his humanity, divinity, and the natures and how they work out. And so, again, this is a tradition that stood for two thousand years. That is in its own language, in its own traditions, its own styles, and is very much committed to orthodoxy and rejecting paganism or rejecting heretical theology, including Arianism, uh, the idea that Jesus created being. But at the same time, does it in its own terms, in its own way, and in its own contextualized, uh, you know, language and the and literature. And Shenouda is the greatest example of that. And what's what's the time period roughly about Shenouda? Yeah, so Shenouda lived from the mid-4th century, the mid-300s, up until the mid-400s. And mm. so he actually was one of the people who participated in the Council of Ephesus in the year 431, uh, where they were arguing about, you know, whether or not Mary was the bearer of God, the Theotokos. And so, uh, yeah, he, 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 passed he passed away right around the time of the Council of Chalcedon. And, and really the 400s was kind of the main time where he was really writing a lot of his literature and sermons. And he really developed an entire tradition because after him you see other other egyptian leaders who began to write sermons and write coptic literature in the way 
that he did. If you, if you, if you go and study Coptic language, which again is the language of Egypt, it's the same language as the hieroglyphics. It's just in that phase yeah. when it was a Christian phase. This is the yeah. Egyptian language before Egyptians became forced to speak Arabic and, and, and the, before the Egyptian language died. This is, Coptic is the Egyptian language. It, it just, you know, it's just another word, way of saying it. I mean, it's actually just the kind of uh, Hellenized way of saying Egyptian, like Guptas, Coptic is kind of the same word and so this this really represents the 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 dominant amount of literature in the Coptic language if you want to study Egyptian history in late antiquity so I'm talking about like from the second century up until about the seventh century and you, you want to read Egyptian Christian. literature you're gonna be reading Christian yep. literature Them Christians they were theologizing yep. translations of the Bible homilies uh, you know sermons and prayers and commentary on scripture these 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 Egyptian African brothers were obsessed with the word of God and preaching the word of God and that, that's all you that's all you're gonna read if you read yeah. Egyptian literature Coptic literature so you again you talk about evidence you talk about facts and what the evidence shows us again the Coptic language which is the Egyptian language is 90 something percent Christian literature and the rest hey. is just like receipts and stuff like somebody bought <laughs> a, a glass of wine from a vineyard and the rest of it is, uh, is the bible they probably right. was they were probably taking it to church for communion right <laughs> right I, i'm i'm gonna let you go soon but i i um i actually think we're gonna touch on everything because i only got a couple more um points i'm gonna let you go soon i don't want to i don't want to keep you um up all night you know but i did want to uh uh discuss a little bit about um perpetua and felicity you know um <laughs> african women who actually um who who were actual martyrs right mm -hmm. you know um mm -hmm. do, do you know a little bit about that you want to elaborate on that a little bit or yeah yeah um yeah so like you said perpetual felicity these were um two of the earliest christian martyrs and i mean again in the Roman Empire. Now, this is an interesting point that I just want to, just in case anybody didn't hear earlier. But again, in the early century, we 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 don't, we want to be careful not to always tell history in like you know only in the Western centric way. So people often say, well, in the early years, Christians were persecuted. Well, in the Roman Empire, they were. In the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted, but they weren't really in the Persian Empire, and they were living much more freely. Mm. And so, but in the Roman Empire, Christians were being persecuted, and, and Perpetua and Felicity were some of the earliest examples of that. These were two North African women who lived in the city of Carthage, around the city of Carthage, which Carthage was the capital. It was the main kind of, um, you know, um, what was the main center for the Roman Empire in North Africa. It was really, as a city, it was second only to Rome itself. It was a huge city and uh, and it was, and, and there was a lot of Christians there, but as a Roman colonial outpost in North Africa, the Romans had conquered North Africa, uh, you know, way, you know, kind of going way back to the Punic Wars in the third century BC. So now North Africa was a Roman colony and uh, Perpetua and Felicity were, uh, you know, Perpetua was a noble woman and Felicity was a servant woman. And both of them were in prison for the gospel in Carthage. And I was actually blessed to actually visit the place where they, they were likely martyred uh, just a few months ago over in ancient Carthage today. And wow. they, there was a Colosseum just like there was in Rome and everywhere else. And, and they were imprisoned and they were, there was the, you know, people were trying to get them to just like this would happen all over the, the place in the early church where they were trying to get you to recount your, you know, recant your faith and reject Jesus. And they, the martyrs would always be like, no, we're not doing it. And, you know, they'll all, they would always preach the gospel to their last breath. And whether that meant getting thrown to the lions or, or stoned to death or whatever it meant. And Perpetual Felicity were two women who were soldiers for Christ and died and they eventually died. Even Perpetual's father was trying to get her to, re, to recant. And so one of the interesting things too, really interesting thing about Perpetual Felicity is again, that they are women uh, who are the protagonists of the story, who are the center of the story, which unfortunately is, 
not as common as it should be, but the, this is a good window into how women, sisters in Christ, were living out their faith, even when men were telling them to walk away from the faith or to reject Christ. They were, these were women who were rebelling against the authority of men telling them to you know, reject Christ, and they were saying, no, because of their commitment to Christ, they're willing to die for the gospel and even disobey male authority in their life. And, and actually, there's even some theories that the martyrdom or the, the passion story that tells their story was actually, up until her death, obviously, was predominantly written by Perpetua. And so if that's true, um, there's some arguments about, you know, who the author of that, that passion story was. But if that's true, then Perpetua, the story about Perpetua and Felicity would have been the first Christian text written by a woman. And, and, and it's likely that it could have been the case, given the intimate details uh, that really with which the story lays out. And, 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 and again, if that is true, and, and perpetual felicity, if their martyrdom, the way they were killed uh, and thrown in the Colosseum for their faith in Christ, and they died for the faith bravely, um, if it's true that that was the first Christian text written by a woman, then also that would have been written by an African woman. A North African woman would have been our first extant Christian author as a female. Now, now to put that in context, y'all, to put that in context, because that's a really big deal, you know. So, all right. So, so first of all, you know, correct me if I'm um, if 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 I'm um, misunderstanding you. So, it it's possible that the earliest writing that we have of a Christian woman would come from was it Perpetua or Felicity? With Perpetua. Yeah, yeah. The the well, the the argument, the thought is that perhaps Perpetua, because she was the noble woman, so she was, you know, right. she would have been educated, and uh, you know, Felicity was a was a servant, and so um and so uh yeah, it's, the idea is that Perpetua would have been the one who may likely have written the story that told their life and how they were persecuted. Now, now again, we can't be completely sure, but it is a a a note worth pointing out at this point. Now, that's still a doozy and that's still a really big deal because in academia even when we can look at evidence and we can look at the historicity of something and we can go well we can't really know for sure but it does appear to be this way or it does seem to be this way that's still a big deal you get what I'm saying? Because it's a lot of things that we rely on, not just in religious history, but just in history in general that are you know that are as certain at or uncertain is that you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so for us to have that is a big deal. And granted, it's sad that we that we are uh, that we are in um, a, a state where we have to point out the African history in this context. Don't get me wrong; church history is amazing, no matter the continent, no matter the location, because it's all about the gospel, about Jesus um, living, dying, rising again, forgiving us of our sins. That's the main thing. However, it is important for us. Unfortunately, it's important for us to present these facts in this context because of the history of America and how it affects black people or people of color who don't believe. I mean, so for those of us who need to be aware of this, be aware of a, you know, these are, I personally don't know of any uh, earlier women, Christian martyrs for sure, for sure. Um, But I won't speak too authoritatively, but I speak with too much authority on that. But, they're certainly of the earliest um, women Christian martyrs that we that we know of, and they're African 
women, y'all. That is mind blowing, you know, and, and I'm trying not to even get, I'm trying to focus on the whole church history thing. I'm trying not to even like get into the actual uh, scripture, Dr. Bantu, you know, because, because, you know, and when I say things like, Hey, even if you want to say Christianity isn't true, the reason why I say stuff like that is because even if you want to go to the bare minimum, before we start arguing about doctrine, the fact of the matter is the Bible is a book. It is a collection of 66 different books that were written over a period of time. And black people, Africans, have been included in the story from the very beginning. Whether you want to go to Genesis, to Numbers, where it talks about Moses, God's right-hand man having an African wife, all the way to the Holy Spirit establishing the New Testament church, and Africans are present, an Ethiopian eunuch um, converting, you know, the prophet Jeremiah, his life was saved by an African. We could go on and on. The point that I'm attempting to make is that people of African descent, people of color have been included in the biblical story from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have anything you want to add to that thought I just said or anything? Or Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I got an amen from Dr. Bond too, man. So praise the Lord. Hey, before I let you go, before I let you go, uh, can you... Do you mind telling the story I actually heard you tell uh, about um, an Ethiopian priest that you were that that you were um, speaking about, and you told him about how Christianity, being the white man's religion, is an issue that we come across here in the states, and how we actually found it funny? You know, the reason why that's powerful to me is because well, I'll just let you tell the story first, and then I'll say why it's so powerful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I remember what you're talking about. Yeah, that. Well, it's kind of like the point we were making earlier about the um, you know, just the whole idea of like kind of uh, Christianity being in Armenia. That's like the national religion, you know, in you know, in that country, and it's been there, you know, since day one. Um, and so, or from a very early standpoint. So, you know, to the point to where if you went to Armenia, we're like, oh, Christianity is a white man's religion, it's a Western religion. They would just right. be like. What are you talking about? And that's right. kind of the experience I had in that story where I was in, you know, when I went to Ethiopia and I was exploring these early churches and, um, and just, you know, really just being amazed at how in Ethiopia, I, I like to call Ethiopia real life Wakanda, you know, cause every, you know, right now, you know, <laughs> ever since Black Panther came out, everybody's like, yeah, we, Wakanda, we got to go to Wakanda and stuff. And, you know, uh, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if Wakanda really existed? I'm like, it does. It's called Ethiopia. Like that's <laughs> the only African country that's never been colonized. And I mean, they have wow. their own writing system, their own culture, their own history like their own calendar like they have their own way of doing things and it's a predominantly christian country not that much longer after armenia this is another little side point but uh it goes back to the constantine thing but we were again we were talking about constantine but constantine's son constantius he was it wasn't no question or it wasn't no doubt about it he was a full-blown arian like constantius the son of Mm. constantine who was emperor he was an arian and so again we have this idea that oh well the roman emperors were these great christians but no constantius was an arian and he was trying to basically bring arian theology and make that the dominant version of christianity basically again the belief that jesus was not god and so it, uh, when Christianity became the dominant religion in Ethiopia, in Axum, the king, Ezana, uh, who was the king of Axum at the time, who embraced Christianity as the national religion of Ethiopia, at that time, there was, uh, Constantius was uh, writing to him and basically trying to get him to embrace Aryan Christianity in particular. And, and, and Izana rejected that. And instead, the Ethiopian church became united with the Egyptian church and Athanasius in particular. And we have writings for this. Athanasius, who was the, uh, who was the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, 
he writes about this and was talking and he was encouraging the Ethiopian king and the Ethiopian kingdom in orthodoxy in the belief that Jesus is God. So just picture that. I mean, just, you know, break it down like picture that in the 340s, you have two African regions, Egypt and Ethiopia, both of whom are predominantly Christians in an orthodox sense. They believe Jesus is God. He is Lord and Savior. And then at that point in the Roman Empire is being ruled by an emperor who believes Jesus was a created being and a subordinate. So you have the major power of what would later be called Europe or the Western world. You have the, you have the major power of the Roman Empire attempting to enforce heresy, to enforce false theology in Africa. Wow. And what yeah. have happened? Africans unite and reject her heretical theology and say, no, you can take that heretical theology because we read the Bible and it says mm. that Jesus is God and that he rose again and that he is, uh, the, he is one with the Father. And so you can keep that heretical theology up there in Rome, but over here in Africa, in Egypt and in Ethiopia, we are going to embrace Orthodox theology. And so that was a little side note, but, but I mean, I'm sorry, get back to the story. So again, you, but just keeping that in mind, that legacy that Ethiopia has of being a Christian nation, a uh, never been colonized, a, a black and beautiful and proud Christian nation for for 1600 years. When I went there, uh, and I was telling the and I was telling this brother that I met, I, I was seeing these churches, and I was I was just so amazed by this history and the way that Ethiopians rejected Roman heresy and embraced their own uh, and embraced their own tradition and, and rooted in biblical orthodoxy. I was just telling him how amazed I was at it, and he was saying, uh, and I was saying how you know how moving it was because I was telling him about how for many black people, especially in America and other parts of the world, we we tend to think that. Christianity was started in slavery and, you know, kind of like that was how Christianity first came into, um, you know, black people's lives was through slavery and colonialism. So I was just telling them how this is so moving that to know that Christianity actually was in Africa from, you know, way before slavery, way before, even before it was in Europe. And, and, and the man was just looking at me and he started laughing, you know, cause I, I told him like, yeah, cause you know, a lot of people see Christianity as the white man's religion. Right. And, People or African people, and and he just started cracking up laughing. He was like, he started bugging up, like he thought that was hilarious, like the idea that you know, oh wow, people really think that, people really see it that way. And, um, and I got mad. I was like, man, this ain't funny. What you laughing at, man? We have people over here like suffering for the faith. Like, what you? This ain't funny. Um, but then a a after a little bit, I was thinking like, man, that's kind of that's kind of dope. That like for him, that idea is so foreign that he finds it funny. I was right. like, man. Like, how amazing would it be if we were so free from this, right. from this, this, this problematic mental association that we found it funny that if we, I mean, it, 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 I, I long for the day that for someone to say Christianity is a white man's religion would sound as silly as right. someone saying that Hinduism is a Mexican religion. Like, right. like, you right. know, like I, I want that in Jesus name, that day is going to come. Amen. Amen. For real. And you know, I got, I got, and, and that's actually, um, what I was going to say, why that's so, uh, why that's such a powerful story, because even if a person is not a believer, you know, when they, when they take the position that it's the white man's religion, they're, they're actually falling into the powers of uh, white supremacy and the things that it's done be, be, because like, they'll say that you and I as believers are brainwashed and and we need to be more woke, you know, but in reality, you're being unwoke by saying that, you know, because, because you're falling victim to false teachings that came out of that evil 
period. You get what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and I got and, and I got two more questions and, and I'm gonna let you go. Uh I usually um I usually don't take any uh any like live questions, but I'm gonna throw this at you because I think you can handle it. Um somebody just sent me a question. It says, Question Was the killing and death and destruction of millions of indigenous indigenous people part of God's plan for the expansion of Christianity? Absolutely not. Um, I think I just visited, um, I actually just visited uh, the um, the uh, missions out in California. I, I was taking a road trip there and I saw all those different 21 missions um, where, you know, like uh, Junipero Serra, you know, kind of the, considered the apostle of California, founded all these missions for the Spanish empire, um, you know, like hundreds of years ago. And, and I was just, I was, I was actually thinking that, you know, this might be the most uh, enraging and depressing place that I've ever been is to be in mission, European missions in, in the Americas. I think, uh, you know, for just for me, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I've been to, uh, I've been to, um, uh, you know, con- former concentration camps in Germany and, uh, you know, I've been to slave castles in West Africa and, you know, I've, you know, um, I've seen some places, uh, some sites of some horrible atrocities that uh, the way humanity has treated one another and not to compare things and say something's worse than another or one oppression is worse than another. Not at all. I'm just saying that the reason that being in missions in the Americas, I think it just gets to me at a deeper level, at a theological level, because this was European missionaries who, in the name of Jesus Christ, were literally setting up camp. In, in other people's country who were being accompanied by soldiers and governors from Spain and Portugal and England and all these other European countries who on the backs of the wealth that they were acquiring because of massacres and genocide and violence being perpetrated against native peoples, then missionaries decided to come on the heels of that and set up camp and say that we are going to spread the, the word of God. And to be fair, yes, some of these like Bartolome de las Casas, some of these missionaries pushed back against a lot of the colonization that was going going on. Um, but that does not really that, uh, I mean, you know, assuaging the, the, the Western conscience is not really the main issue right here. The, the issue is the fact that native peoples and people around the world were literally decimated and it was legitimized in the name of Jesus Christ by European mm-hmm. Christians. We cannot backpedal or we cannot, there's no two ways about that, that there's nothing, there's nothing godly about that. Um, and that there is nothing, uh, that, that, that is never, um, something that, the God of love and the God of the gospels who calls us to love all of those people and who, you know, call who actually, who actually prepares, Jesus prepares his disciples before he is getting ready to go up to the cross and die for their sins. He's preparing them for persecution. He's saying you are, the world is going to hate you like it hates me. He's preparing them to go out into the world and be bold in the gospel. And in no, in nowhere in Jesus's voice is there a call for conquest, political and militaristic conquest that like what Constantine thought he was doing in Jesus's name. There's nowhere in the scriptures that that can be justified, that these kind of holy wars can be justified. And so there is nothing about um, uh, nothing about what happened to native people, quote unquote, in the name of Jesus. That is part of God's plan. In fact, it is the exact antithesis of God's plan for how he calls his people to live out as salt and, and 
as light and to love people and to be the light of the gospel uh, in relationship and through the proclamation of the word, never by conquering people. And so, um, so, so as evil as that was, and as as antithetical to God's plan as it was, I think that uh, also God is also someone who can, who is in the business of taking what the enemy intends for evil and turning it around for good and working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I think that, we have a moment, we have a, we have a very uh, important key moment that we can reclaim and we can really, you know, speak against a lot of what's happened, but also that actually um, God is drawing many native people to himself and, 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 and many people around the world that have also been, uh, you know, hurt in the name of Christianity, that we can tell truth about that, but also speak the true gospel that people actually can follow Jesus as they are. Yeah, and also, and also, you know, I I don't think it's fair for us, you know, um, to you know to to blame God for the faults of us humans. You know what I mean? You know, that's like if it's a guy somewhere committing adultery, he's having orgies and stuff, just cheating all on his wife or whatever. It's like okay, like did God make him do just because that man has a lust problem or that man has a uh, or whatever our flaws may be as humans? You know, when we do things that are outside of God's plan, because by the way, you know, murder and rape, all of this stuff is outside of God's will. You know, so when we do whatever it is you know whether you, you know the extreme level is here or here outside of God's will it's outside of God's will you know and this is actually why we need the blood of the lamb this is why we need Jesus you know so that we can repent you know so that we can be saved you know um you know, that was actually from my boy Anthony um Alfonsia. you know that's my boy right there you know he, he likes to have challenging conversations I love talking to him um so my last thing my last thing and maybe I should have arranged it where we ended on a more popular note but it kind of just popped in my head was a lot of the stuff that we discussed, although it is all over Africa, we, it's not necessarily in Southern Africa or even mid Africa. So to your understanding, you know, did, did Southern Africans or, or once we even get like midway down, did they, to your understanding, to the best of your knowledge, however we may know, did they first get introduced to the gospel via slave trade and abuse and captivity and servitude? Yeah, I think that I think that unfortunately, there's no way around that reality that that especially African Americans, our ancestors who were put on the ships, that um, the vast majority of them were introduced. Well, all of them were introduced to Christianity through colonialism, because I was going to say the really interesting exception uh, to that reality is that there actually were Christians who were brought over in the transatlantic slave trade that were already Christian that were Christians when they were brought on the slave ships, uh, especially coming from the kingdom of the Congo. Now, again, the Congo became a Christian nation in the 1400s, and that was also through European colonialism. It wasn't through, um, Mm. it wasn't being forced on them. The king of the Congo freely embraced, Nzinga Mbemba freely embraced Christianity as the national religion, specifically Catholicism, as the national religion of the Congo in the 1400s and then he actually was selling slaves himself uh, and and you know was engaging with the Portuguese in the slave trade and there are documented slaves who came over even to the United States who were already Christians before they arrived here but again that's also still through the again the colonial intervention of the Portuguese who had arrived to West Africa starting in the 1400s and so um, and so again that's the that's the lamentable reality again you mentioned Native Americans 
it's it's a it's an unfortunate reality that for Native Americans and for West and Southern and uh, mostly most Central African people, Christianity was introduced to us through Western colonialism and through slavery, as it was for many people in in Asian contexts. For example, Christianity came into Japan uh, through Western colonialism, uh, but it did not come through China through Western colonialism, but it came from Persian missionaries who came into China and preached the gospel without any kind of conquest or imperialism. And so, um, and so, uh, and so I think that's one of the things to look at is that, that yes, of course, there are many people groups for whom their particular story with Christianity did begin with Western colonialism and imperialism. And so that's why we have to tell the truth truth about that and denounce that again back to the brother's question that this is not part of God's plan this is you know but we also have to look at the whole story that to say that Christianity for uh, for African diasporic people in the Americas began in slavery yes that's true but to say that Christianity was invented by white folks and that it was, you know, I mean, uh, I've seen videos from, uh, you know, people like uh, in, you know, kind of in some of these um, identity movements in these new religious movements on YouTube, where they'll say, like, well, Christianity came into Africa as a whole, um, you know, through uh, through imperialism and, and, and through and as I said, well, no, that's going too far. Yes, for some African people and people of African descent, that was the that was the story. But as we talked about now, for contexts like Egypt and Nubia and Ethiopia, that was not the story at all. In fact, Christianity came in freely. It was believed upon freely. And it not only was popular, but it was the national religion. It was the dominant religion of Nubia, of Ethiopia, and it was the dominant religion in Egypt and North Africa as well for hundreds of years. And one quick final note um, that, that is kind of interesting to that point, that actually in the context of Nubia, you actually have in Nubian monasteries from the medieval period, you have examples of Central African people who very much culturally stand out from what is kind of the Nile Valley Nubian Cushitic culture. But you have Central Africans who are wearing African animal uh, masks and crest masks and, and, and playing, you know, what kind of equivocate like a conga drum that, you know, are engaging in cultural practices that are much more, we would associate more with like sub-Saharan African culture, like West and Central and South African culture. There, there are paintings of these Central African people who would have been, you know, like from what we now call uh, the, the Congo or uh, uh, Nigeria, who were painted worshiping Jesus Christ in African animal masks and who were in churches. There, uh, I mean, you know, we're used to seeing paintings on the walls of churches with certain, like, in a certain way. Well, in ancient African churches, they had Central Africans on, painted on their walls right next to paintings of Jesus, and they were worshiping Jesus in animal masks. Yeah. And so uh, that's a that's a that's just a taste of you know uh, of some of the history that ultimately we may not know, but because the you know folks working on this uh, this church are you know are pretty clear that these were not Nubians. These these Africans in this painting were not from Nubia, but they were more from further west and central Africa. So that is an indication right there that the gospel had penetrated and was penetrating the entirety of the continent of Africa. Yeah. Just thoroughly penetrated the Nile Valley at a very early age. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man. Uh, your your knowledge, your um, your soliloquies, man, your passion, you know, is very evident. I'm very grateful to have you on. Uh, so so I, I'm really I was really excited to have you on because you know, I did a part one. So this is essentially part two um, mm. to, 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 to this topic. Um, and the reason why it was important for me to have you on is because when I covered it in part one, you know, I, I covered a lot of uh, 
you know, a, a lot of things, but we didn't go into as much detail, you know, about the church councils, you know, about, um, you know, early African martyrs and, and stuff like that. But I did cover certain things like, um, like you mentioned P52 earlier, you know, but even with things that have the entire New Testament, like Codex Sinaiticus, which is dated around AD 325, AD 350, something like that, you know, that too was located in Egypt, you know, so further to the points that we're talking about, you know, uh, we have so much evidence of Christianity um, in different parts of Africa. And, and so if you went backwards and you check this out, be sure to check out part one as well. Um, we have Dr. Vince Bantu who covered so much great detail and I don't even think he got any notes. He was just off the top of his head, just blah, man, you know, so your passion and your obvious years and hours of study, man, is a blessing to the kingdom, my brother. Um, you have any last words? Man, no, it's just it's a blessing to to be here, man. And I just I just applaud what you're doing and and uh man, I just I'm I'm standing with you in solidarity. So God bless God bless this ministry you're doing, brother. Amen. To God be the glory. And for those who are watching it, for those who are watching, this is Is He a Real One Radio. Is he a real one? Yes, he is. And the he we talking about is Jesus, y'all. Jesus is a real one. Jesus is God. He always has and always will be. In the beginning, he was with God. And in the beginning, he was God, y'all. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen.